Thanks for listening to the Media People Podcast, lively and insightful chats with the people who power the media industry. I'm your host, Victor Genova. For more episodes, go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching Media People Podcast. Views expressed by participants are personal. Editorial content is only one of the facets a magazine's editor-in-chief is charged with overseeing. They also act as the public face of the brand, handle publicity, and represent at industry events, among other things. These are the many hats today's guest, Michelle Kelly, wears. Michelle is the editor-in-chief of Cottage Life magazine. And what makes Michelle's climb to editor-in-chief so interesting is that unlike many of the past guests on this podcast, who have moved to different companies to gain experience and grow professionally, Michelle's career has exclusively been at Cottage Life. Starting out as the receptionist, Michelle Kelly tells us about her rise from the front desk to the corner office. So Cottage Life it was started in 1988, and it began as a magazine, and the idea was that it was a bit of a handbook for cottagers, people who had purchased a cottage and didn't know how to build a set of stairs or take care of the septic system. So we began a magazine which focused on service to teach them how to do all of the things they needed to know to maintain their properties, but also to let them have a bit of an escape. So they got cottage life in April when there was still snow on the ground and it let them think about, you know, beautiful summer days when they were at their favorite place on earth at the cottage. And it took off really quickly. It was a really, I mean, really a fantastic idea. It was a great niche group of uh, readers that we were able to uh, capture the advertising community's attention with and also create some really great content that, that was really appreciated. That, that the readers really needed. Um, and it wasn't long before Al Zikovitz, who founded the magazine, uh, saw other opportunities to take his brand sort of across platform, which at the time was a very uh, smart thing for him to do. This was, you know, pre-Martha Stewart even. And he started a consumer show. So a three-day event where cottagers from all over Ontario would come and they would shop for docks and boats and lawn furniture and uh, that was a huge success. And so we looked for other ways to expand his empire as it became. And now, uh, we have not just that consumer show, but we have a television network, a very robust website and social media channels. We have a line of licensed merchandise and we're always looking for the next big opportunity. So really cottage life is now the, the one-stop shop for all things cottage in Canada and, and even beyond. Before we go any further, I want to go back to the beginning. Where are you from? I am born and raised in Toronto. Local person. I'm a local. What was life like growing up in Toronto? Like what part of Toronto were you from? So I am from North Toronto. I had a fairly idyllic upbringing. I come from a pretty big family. I have uh, three brothers and we were all... um, very lucky. We had lots of, we kind of lived living in North Toronto. It's a little bit of a suburb in the city. We had lots of strong community, lots of, you know, playing in the street until the lights came on kind of upbringing. And, uh, we're all very involved in sports. And of course we had our cottage that we went to every weekend. So the cottage was already a big part of your diet growing up then. Oh yeah. Yeah. My cottage, uh, my family cottage was actually built on land that my father's father had owned that he very smartly bought way, way back when it was, you know, super cheap to buy waterfront property in Eastern Ontario. And he bought, um, a huge swath of a lake on the Rideau and 
basically my dad bought that land from him and built a cottage on it before my parents were even married. And in fact, my mother is from the town where that cottage was built. Uh, she grew up in that small town. So uh, my dad was from Toronto. So that was kind of, I think of that cottage as being my second home. So cottaging was, is, is truly in my blood and has been my whole life. And I spent every summer there growing up. And growing up, you were a bit of an academic, but also quite the athlete as well. Let, let's touch on that first. That is generous. <laughs> but you were a pretty big figure skater. Yes. Talk to us about that. Because I yeah. find figure skating interesting because as we were chatting about beforehand, it's a pretty difficult sport. There really aren't any training wheels for you. You jump for the first time and you don't land properly. You're going to fall. Yeah. Well, I mean, luckily you don't start out by jumping, right? But I, yeah, I loved figure skating. We grew up really close to a rink. In fact, uh, right across the street practically. So when I think sometimes I was skating out of necessity, I had three siblings uh, we were all pretty close in age. And I think for my parents, we were all running in, they were running in all different directions, trying to ferry us from one event to hockey, to piano lessons, to this, to that. And it just so happened there was this rink nearby. And so I loved skating from the second I did it. Um, when I was, I think I was five when I started and, um, it was really the thing that I did, you know, every day after school until I was pretty well into my teens. And then, at that point, I grew to be about five foot eight and not a lot of uh, opportunity for tall girls in really? skating. Yeah. It's no, sort was, of cap then. Oh, yeah, Kinda definitely. Kind like a jockey or a race car driver where Yeah, no, I should have been height. a jockey. That's actually a great idea. <laughs> no, you know what? I wish I had been a hockey player because I, at the, but at that time, you know, this was in the 80s. There wasn't a lot of girls hockey. It wasn't certainly not as popular as it is today. But luckily for me, I found an outlet in skating, which was uh, through what's now called synchronized skating, but back then was called precision skating. And it's a team event. So there's uh, 20, anywhere from 20 to 30 uh people on the ice at once skating together. And that ended up being something that I really got into and, and was able to spend, um, a lot of time on the team and doing, uh, going all over Canada for competitions. And it was just such a healthy environment for me. It was, and in fact, pretty great to be on a team sport as, as, as a female, because again, that wasn't as common to have soccer teams or hockey teams when, when I was that age. So I was really lucky to have that outlet. So when you say it was a team sport, how many of you were on the ice at once or did you train as a team and then you had, you did your own individual competition, your own individual. No, no, we trained as a team. So there was 32 of us on the ice at once. And this was back in the day. It's no longer like this. Now synchro is in fact, what they do now is completely different. It's it's very much they're vying for a spot in the Olympics. They want to bring the sport to the Olympics, and it's really something that you you know they're professional. Athletes. Was this more ice capades? You could say it, it, maybe a little bit ice capades. Yeah, if anyone listening remembers ice capades. Yeah, no, that's right. But it is sort of the kind of you know a group all doing formations on the ice and doing the same movements at the same time. And uh, and and again, back then it was way different than what it is now. Right now, it's really quite uh, you know they're really elite athletes that are doing it. For me, I was. Um, you know, I was very committed to doing it three or four times a week, but by no stretch was I an elite athlete. You also mentioned that you've got a great love of reading and the arts, favorite author, book, anything that influenced you? Oh, wow. That's a really difficult question. It's funny. I was, a, as I was growing up, I wasn't huge into reading. Actually, I, I never really read um, you know, I was, I was the kind of kid who needed to move. I was never the kind of kid who could sit still. So it was, that's why sports were such a great oh, idea for me. That. Yeah, exactly. As I got older and developed a better attention span, I came to really love reading, um, and books. And now of course I'm, you know, a professional editor and writer. So it's, 
I think as, as that became my job, reading became even more important because it is so inspirational and instructive for me in my work. My favorite author, I mean, honestly, I could tell you, I don't know that I have a favorite author, but I have books that I could read again and again. I'd say it's a good book. Those are pretty rare. I mean, I do a lot of reading myself, but actually finding that one book you could pour over and over again, I think that's pretty rare. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, I have to say, if I was to choose an author, uh, I love Alice Munro. I love uh, the way she writes is so clear and beautiful, and the way she structures her stories are incredible. And I mean, she's a true treasure. So she is definitely one of my favorites, and I could read her stories over and over again. But listen, I will read pretty much anything you put in front of me. I'm not, uh, you know, I'm happy to read something that's a cheesy romance novel is to me just as fun as reading something that's really in depth history about the second world war. I mean, all of it can be interesting to me. It's pretty, I have pretty eclectic taste in that way. Who's Penny Caldwell? Because you cite her as being one of your influences. Yes. Penny Caldwell. Well, Penny Caldwell is a career maker, I think is what I was saying about her. And for me, there's, that's absolutely true for, uh, 15 years, she was the editor of Cottage Life magazine. She was the editor just before me. And she hired me into the editorial department and was really, truly, um, not just my mentor, but, but, but my boss for many years. And, uh, one of those people who seemed to have limitless, uh, abilities to foster the talent around her. She had time to teach you things, to show you things, even when you knew she actually didn't really have time. Not to mention, as the editor of the magazine, she truly set a standard for us here that is, you know, the highest standard. We learned, all the people on the editorial team learned so much from her, and she made the magazine the respected publication. I mean, it was always respected, but she sort of really solidified uh, Cottage Life as being one of the best magazines, I believe, in the country, and, and that really is all because of her. What about Al Zikovitz? You mentioned him as well. Yeah. So Al um, started the magazine in 1988 and really had this visionary um, plan for what Cottage Life would be. He's still involved, uh, particularly with the consumer shows at the magazines, and is one of those people, you know, I talk about Penny being such a strong mentor and helping people uh, around her get better at what they're doing. And a lot of that was enabled by Al because he was very much as the CEO and the president of Cottage Life Media, even as, as we were seeing all this success, he always had time to answer your questions. I remember I actually joined the magazine as the receptionist. And here I was the receptionist, 22 years old, just out of university, very green, not knowing anything. And he would stop whatever he was doing to stand at my desk and explain anything I wanted. No question was too big small. And I think that attitude that he had and that Penny had really permeated the entire organization. And, you know, I think to watch Al is to learn about not just how to start, you know, an entrepreneurial business, but to understand how to create a work culture that has people giving you their best every day. Um, and, and really having fun and creating a great culture. He, he's truly a master of that. But Cottage Life wasn't your first job. You started first as a camp counselor in high school. Tell us about your first gig ever. Yes, I guess that's true. So um, I went to a camp called Camp Oconto, which is in uh, eastern Ontario. And it was close to my cottage, which is how I ended up there. An all-girls camp. And uh, I can say, so that was, I went, started going when I was 11. And then I became a counselor. And that was, you know, my first summer job was being a counselor to uh, kids. 
And it's funny, I say I'm a huge believer in, in going to camp, not necessarily that one, although it's a fantastic place, but <laughs> any camp, because you learn such incredible leadership skills, such incredible um, self-confidence, just, you know, you know how to paddle a kayak and tie all of the knots and learn how to um, start a fire and all of those camp things, but you also learn how to believe in yourself and how to lead others. And, you know, I still say to this day that that the majority of my leadership skills that I use all the time in my current role, I learned at Campo Conto when I was 17 years old. A lot of independence comes with that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think I, I look back I for a couple of summers was a tripper. So I would take, I think this summer I was 18. I would take um, campers out on canoe trips. And this was back in the day, there was no cell phones. There was no GPS. You took, you know, six or seven, nine-year-olds in a canoe and you went into the wilderness for three days. And I look back at that and I think, wow, you know, I was, I was a child doing that, but, but, but wow, what a responsibility that, that you have and you, and you recognize that it's a big responsibility. And then when you meet it, it's hugely confidence building and you, and you do learn a lot of independence and that, that can sort of feed you at such a formative time and, and you, it really does help you throughout your whole life and, and you call back on those skills and you, and it really teaches you what you're capable of. So camp is to me, the number one thing to do with your kids. It's funny. You mentioned that, uh, that anecdote right there, that story, because I don't think that would fly now. I think all the kids would have to be tagged with cell phones. So they know their yeah. exact location. Hell, it might not even happen because the lawyers would get involved and say, no, no insurance would cover. Well, this. I know insurance is definitely a big part of their expenses <laughs> at camp, but I, it's funny. I just recently learned that they're not allowed to be on social media at camp. And they, in fact, the camp itself doesn't even post on their Instagram page of, of during the session, because part of what they offer is sort of a digital detox for these kids, because I think teenagers now are all so into social media and their cell phones. So it's actually a nice, uh, a nice break from that at camp. You know what? I missed social media through high school. It wasn't part of my diet either. And I'm glad I did. Thank I can't goodness. imagine what kind of pressure that would have put on a kid. I, I, I'm glad there are no photos of like this of photo. Things. You can't sit with us at lunch or talk or whatever. Yeah. No, it's such pressure for sure. Where did you go to university? So I went to Queens University in Kingston. And what did you study uh, during your time at Queens? My major is in history. I studied mainly 20th century American history, but had a um, focus on women's history and women's studies. A hundred years from now, if you could go back and study 21st, Amer 21st century American history, it'd be one hell of a textbook, wouldn't it? I feel like 2017 on its own would be, <laughs> it'd be quite something, particularly for someone who's studying women's studies, but yeah. So as a lead into becoming editor-in-chief and starting at Cottage Life, you got into... In the essence, what is storytelling at its most basic form at university or its most original form? 100%. It's actually such a good point. Taking a history degree, of course, at the time that I was taking it, I didn't really understand how it might inform my work later on, but it was really about understanding how what we study and who is studying history that makes such a difference to how we interpret the past. And that was really, you know, sort of at the time when I was taking my degree, it wasn't just learning, you know, oh, in 1945, World War II ended, or, you know, in 1969 was the summer of love or any of that. It was really more about, okay, who is telling these stories and what perspective are they telling it from? And how is it that moving forward, you know, we're neglecting other perspectives and how can we round out our understanding of what's happened in the past so we can better understand what's happening in the present and then in the future. Perspective is a big thing because as editor-in-chief, you have to bring your own voice to the magazine. You kind of become the, the voice of the magazine. 
I'm really conscious of that for sure. We have a really strong editorial team among them, some fantastically talented writers. And we try to maintain a consistent tone across the magazine that, you know, I don't like to get in the way of that because really, um, my job is to sort of take, you know, have a guiding tone of it's fun and lighthearted, but you know, we never want to be prescriptive in the way that we tell people to enjoy their cottage. What about outside of the classroom? Anything extracurricular there that, uh, you learned or you can take away from your time at Queens or in Kingston? I was really good at partying in university. That's not a bad <laughs> a thing. A lot of time uh, at the bar. So you came away with memories. Coaches. Oh, I came away with memories. All right. Um, <laughs> no, I had fun for sure. I think, you know, my first two years, I often look back with regret actually, because I could have spent more time studying. You know, you look and you think I could have spent all of that time and money learning a new language or, you know, really you can learn anything that you want. And in that, um, I don't think I really understood or grasped how lucky I was to be in that position. And it wasn't until third year where I really sort of started to focus on my academics more and got so much out of it. But, you know, I also, I was very social. I met a lot of people, some of my best friends today, so I can't regret that. And, um, I think also, you know, we lived in a house and, you know, you, you together with some of my classmates. And of course that teaches you how to be a good friend and, you know, all of that was good. I had a part-time job and, and near the end I was also skating again. So, you know, you learn time management skills, which are so crucial in, in today for me, uh, and for most of us. So, you know, life skills as well as scholastic skills. You've already mentioned that your first gig out of university was with Cottage Life magazine. How did you find yourself in that first role? And one more time, what was it again? I have a very unorthodox story, actually. So my um, mother had a friend who worked at Cottage Life uh, as a salesperson. She was selling um, the magazine ad ad pages. And she had casually mentioned to my mother that they were looking for an editor, sorry, they were looking for a receptionist. And I had just come back from Queens and I was living with my mom here in Toronto. And I really wanted to go backpacking. That was pretty much my only goal at that point with kind of this weird idea in the back of my head that I would go into journalism. And so I just followed up and I called to get this receptionist job and uh, went in and was lucky, uh, got the job and thought, okay, I'll stay here for six months and then I'm going to take off and go backpacking. And I ended up staying, I had so much fun and I was, you know, making a paycheck for the first time and living in the city and kind of had no care in the world, frankly. Um, and ended up staying for 15 months before I eventually did quit my job and went backpacking in New Zealand and Southeast Asia and this big six month trip, which was fantastic. What did you learn about yourself when you did that? Cause a lot of people I speak to are like, oh, I regret that. I should have done that. And I kind of give them the speech where it's like, well, if you don't have kids and you don't have a mortgage, take three to six months to do that. Oh, for sure. It, I mean, for me, uh, I think it's a different experience for everyone, right? I was a pretty sheltered kid. I didn't even have a passport, in fact, before I did that trip, you know, and I was 23 years old. So for me, it was so eye-opening. It was, I went by myself. So I spent all this time traveling in, um, you know, figuring out how to get myself around and keep myself safe. And again, this was like pre-cell phones, pre-even really, like there wasn't even a lot of email at this point. Certainly we weren't walking around with email in our pockets the way that we do now. So yeah, I really learned you, you gotta, I learned how to make my way, you know, and that, and that was pretty awesome. And again, I, I definitely call on that confidence all the time. So you do the backpacking, Mm -hmm. you come back Mm -hmm. and you return to Cottage Life magazine. Yeah. So I came back flat broke 
And I basically went into the office to say, hey, like, do you have any office work that I can do? You, they knew me. I knew them and thought, you know, there might be an opportunity here just to make like a couple of hundred bucks. And I think they did hire me to do something office, some office work around that time. But when that was happening, they had a new position open in the editorial program, which was editorial assistant. And I had at this point pretty much decided that I would apply to journalism school and had started that process. And Penny Caldwell, who was just had just become the editor of the magazine at that time, encouraged me. She and Faith Cochran, who was the art director at the time, encouraged me to apply for this role. And I did. And I was competing against people who had already had their journalism degree. And it was a really prized, it was, it was a great job to get for sure in magazines. And I was lucky because they knew me and they knew how connected I was to the culture of cottaging and how passionate I was. They knew that they could work with me and that gave me a lot of advantages. Um, so I ended up being offered the job and took it and decided not to go to journalism school, decided instead to learn on the job essentially. And that was a really great decision because here I am all these years later, eight, 17 years later. Where did you apply to journalism school? I think I applied to, I don't, I didn't end up applying because I had already started preparing. Okay. Maybe I did. Oh, honestly, Victor, I can't remember. It was, I think I applied to Carlton and Western and Ryerson, I want to say. Were you struggling with that a lot, whether or not to go back to school? Well, not really because I had no money. I had done all of my undergrad on loans, student loans. So I had a huge debt, okay. a huge student loan debt. So I wasn't that keen on taking on more, which is what I would have had to do. And, you know, I talked to other people in, I guess I talked to other people who were either just in journalism school or coming out of journalism school or even journalists themselves who'd say to me, you know, you don't really have to go to journalism school. I mean, it's great if you can, but if you, if, if you don't, you've got a job. Worst case scenario, you, you, after two years of doing this job, you then you can go back to journalism school, make a, a little bit of money and then go to journalism school and you'll have a good time, easy time getting in because you'll have had this experience. So really economics played a part with that. Sure, oh people... yeah, <laughs> sure. Every, every decision economics plays a part for me, but yeah, absolutely. Economics was a big part of it. Let's fast forward a little bit. I want to ask you about the role you had before you became editor-in-chief. What were you doing at that point? Well, I had a lot of roles. It wasn't like I was receptionist, editorial assistant, editor-in-chief. I had essentially worked my way up to, I think I have a stack of my old business cards and they're all, it's so funny because they're all cottage life, but um, editorial assistant, assistant editor, associate editor, senior associate editor, managing editor, senior, senior editor, managing editor, executive editor. So, I mean, this was 15, role, 15 years of different roles, but essentially I was learning the ropes for all of that time, learning how to, at first, just the very fit, sorry, the basics of, of journalism, like fact checking and assigning stories and research. And then, you know, as I went, I would start handling more stories, working with the art team more, um, understanding layout, how a layout works. And then beyond that, really like, you know, working more closely with Penny to, to think about on, on a big picture level, how does the magazine present itself to the readers? What's the tone? How are the themes working? And then beyond that, working with the sales team has become a huge part of what I do in thinking about how we can serve the advertising community as well as the readers. And, um, and you know, that's, that's a ever changing, um, that's an ever changing field right now for us in magazines. Um, so all of that sort of led to, and then, I mean, of course, thinking about the business side of things, which, you know, for so long I was focused on just the creative side. And now I'm thinking more about, okay, how do we, what, what new opportunities can we, um, can we find 
while, you know, still, of course, the foundation always providing good material for our readers and entertaining them and informing them, surprising them, delighting them, all of that stuff together. And looking back at your entire career with Cottage Life magazine, I mean, how did you make the jump from role to role? This is something a lot of people are curious about because you're never really sure whether or not if you're being too tenacious or being too ambitious. When an opening happened above you, did you go into your boss's office and be like, I want to be considered for it? Maybe some days you're sitting at your desk and they're like, Michelle, you're up. It It confuses me so much why if you want something, you have to ask for it. You have to say hey, like no one's going to see you as something unless you present yourself that way. So for example, this happened to me several times where there was a position opening above me and I would go to Penny and say, hey, I want that job. What do I need to do to get it? And at least once I didn't get it, which I remember was very upsetting, <laughs> but, but you know, and then I tried again the next time. And, and even though the first time not getting it, I think one of the editors senior to me had left and I wanted his job and I didn't get it. And I remember thinking, well, at least now they know I want it because the truth is they don't always know you want it unless you say. And I mean, I think this is a particular problem for women, of course, where they don't put their hand up and say, I want to be considered. I think that, you know, at least women in my generation are often uh, taught to be more, um, you know, more relaxed about their ambition or embarrassed about it, uh, not to be aggressive, all of those qualities. And, And I think that's, I think it's a shame because I think unless you're ambitious, there's no shame in being ambitious. It's a, it's a great thing to do. It will propel you forward. Yeah. There, it can get you into troubles perhaps if you're a little bit too ambitious and too outspoken. But, um, to me, the, the opposite of that is a far worse problem to have. I completely agree. The best bit of advice I ever received was if you don't ask the question, then it's all, the answer is always going to be no. 100%. What I, and the other question I ask myself all the time is, well, what do you have to lose by doing X? Well, you know what? Oftentimes, and I know this now as a manager, when someone who is on my team comes to me and wants something or wants to be considered for something, they, you know, even if I tell them no in my head, I think good for that person because they are being, they're showing me confidence. They're showing me initiative. And those are an amazing qualities to have as an employee or as a team member. So to me, there's very little to be lost by being ambitious. There's way more to be lost by not being ambitious. If you could go back in time, what advice would you give to your younger self? It's a good question. For me, a really defining moment in my career came when I realized, I think it was probably, you know, it was maybe three or four years into it. And I was still doing pretty, what would be considered junior level work, a lot of admin stuff, but starting to learn, get into some meteor um, jobs. And I think I was, you know, this is back in the day again, where photocopying was a big thing. It didn't, doesn't happen as much anymore, but because we all have laptops and we're carrying around uh, our, all of our work with us, on, you know, in our in our little computers. And back then it wasn't like that. You go to a meeting with lots of paper, mm-hmm. you know, paper. I remember having a moment being like, you know, if this is what I'm going to do and this is going to get me on the road to doing something that I, you know, to, to being a handling editor on a feature story and I have to do this to get to there, then I'm going to be the very best photocopier there is ever. And realizing that taking pride of in what you're doing and doing whatever it is you're doing the best you can there, there's nothing to be lost in that you you're you're learning work ethic you're showing people that you take pride in your work and what you're taking uh, your job seriously and i wish that i had learned that earlier because i think once i did it really it, it motivates you because no matter what's going on around you as long as you're putting in you know your best 
effort, people do actually notice that. I'm, I am a firm believer that people notice that. So I wish I had come to that conclusion a little bit earlier. Um, and I think also, you know, I wish that I had maybe not taken it so seriously for a long time. I say often now when we're making the magazine, you know, we're making a magazine about going to the cottage. If we're not having fun doing it, we're doing it wrong. And that's true. I mean, we mm-hmm. can't take ourselves so seriously. And, you know, we do talk about issues in the magazine that are to be taken seriously, but on the whole, that's, that's not really, um, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff regardless. So I wish that I had enjoyed that ride a little bit and not been so anxious for the next step. But again, uh, I, don't, I think I did okay. If you weren't media, what do you think you'd be doing and why? Wow. Well, as I already talked about, figure skating is a huge passion of mine. So I feel like I'd love to be, you know, an Olympic figure skater, which (laughs) is definitely never going to happen. But yeah, anything in sport. I mean, I love sports. I I follow almost every sport closely, most sports closely. And, um, you know, I, I love it. And I think probably I would be involved in sport on some level, if not doing it, likely not doing it, maybe covering it or even just facilitating it for people. Because I, I really think sports and physical fitness is such a huge thing, um, that can make people happy in their lives. And I think that everyone should have access to it and opportunity to not just watch it, but to do it, because I think it really can help build so many skills, um, and just let people have fun. So yeah, think something in sports. Michelle, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Victor. That's it for today's show. But for more episodes, you can go to soundcloud.com slash media people podcast or subscribe on iTunes by searching media people podcast. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Vic Genova.